Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for November 14th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a lot of news, including Justice League reshoots, the Rotten Tomatoes score, and Ben Affleck's future as Batman. We'll talk about plans or possible no plans for a theatrical run for Martin Scorsese's Netflix film, adaptations of Super Mario Brothers, Are You Afraid of the Dark, Get Out's surprising Golden Globes category, uh, Disney loses their Pinocchio director, and Ben talks to Paul Shear about his Galaxy Quest TV series, and Paul Sh- joins in on conversations we've had on this podcast. Uh, this is Peter Soda, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And writer Y Tran Bui. How's it going? Good. Hi, everyone. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, so we should just jump in. This is probably like the longest list of news that we've had in quite quite some some time. Um, we're we're going to start this off with Paul Shear, though. You you got to talk to Paul Shear for the Disaster Artist. I did, yes. Yeah. So he plays a, a part in the Disaster Artist, and that full interview will come a little bit later on. But last August, we learned that uh, Paul is going to be writing. Um, a TV adaptation of Galaxy Quest, the 1999 sci-fi comedy, uh, and he's going to be doing that for Amazon. So I asked him uh, about whether he could like give us some more information on that, and I actually have the clip for you guys, so we'll just play that right now. So you're working on Galaxy Quest for yes. Amazon, which we're really excited about. Yeah. Uh, when we spoke with you in August, you weren't quite ready to reveal your take on it yet, but is there anything more that you can tell us you about know, now? Uh, right now... I just handed in my first script to Amazon, so I'm in that zone. Uh, You know, I'm excited about it. It's a bigger idea that's kind of morphed and changed a little bit. Not much, but I mean, you know, to me, the thing that I keep on saying about it, uh, without giving too much away, because I know it's going to be so long (laughs) before people see it, I don't want people to get too burnt out by me telling you what it's about before it gets to that point. But it really, I think, um, for me, it was really important to do service to a Galaxy Quest story that gives you everything that you want that indoctrinates people that have never seen Galaxy Quest into what the fun of that world is, that Tropic Thunder, that Galaxy Quest world. And then also to continue the story 
of our original characters and have consequences from the first film. So um, it's it is mixing two casts. It's um, separate kind of adventures that kind of merge, and it is uh, you know I'm looking at this first season. Um, not as episodic, but as a serialized story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way, only way I can kind of, the only way I was kind of been looking at it is like just making sure that everything, we're using everything from the first movie and making the reasons for everything, not just, I want to avoid anything that could be viewed as like a reboot for reboot's sake. This is like, there's real reasons behind these choices. I mean, maybe too much so, but I'm like, I, I but you know, but to me, and then the other jumping off point was, uh, I love that in 1999, as a fan of Star Trek and going to these conventions as I was a kid, sci-fi, fantasy, those worlds have changed so drastically. And so, and, and really wanting to capture, you know, the difference between the original cast of Star Trek and the J.J. Abrams cast of Star yeah. Trek, and I think that that to me is my my entry point. You know, okay. it's like it's it's uh, sci-fi heroes are rock stars now. I mean, you know, it's like Thor is like if you look at Thor, like in nineteen ninety nine, that movie came out, it would not be received the way it is. Like right. people would not want to see a cosmic galactic thing, you know, in that level, you know. Yeah. I, but now we're accepting it. And I think that that just by virtue of that switch in our environment it will make the story feel a little bit more fresh. That's cool. So, yeah, we'd heard from our own sources previously that the show was looking to mix uh, an older cast with a new one, but this is the first sort of official confirmation of that. Uh, it, he does talk about, um, you know, how this is going to be basically a continuation of the movie, so that's pretty cool, too, and he's looking at it as a serialized story. That's also really nice to hear. Um, we're not entirely sure if the original cast, Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Tony Shalhoub, Sam Rockwell... And uh, Daryl Mitchell will be coming back, but it well, seems it, it like, like that's some the of them intention. Are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody is signed up at this point, and as he mentioned, you know, it's still the show is still a little bit far. Uh, you know, th- it's going to be a little while before we actually get to see it. But um, yeah, and the other thing that I really liked, you know, that he mentioned there was the concept of the drastically, you know, changing fan culture and how um, that is going to be, uh, you know, directly addressed in the show, which sounds really interesting. Peter, what do you think? I, I honestly, I think that's probably one of the biggest changes since that Galaxy Quest movie actually came out is, you know, Internet has really changed the fan culture. Back then, it was like you had to go to these conventions to kind of uh, hang out with, you know, groups of people that love the thing you love. But now, you know, we just get online and we bitterly complain about it from afar, <laughs> you know, under pseudonames. Um, and uh I know Paul has said on Twitter that there's actually going to be a slash film reporter in in, in the pilot episode. I'm not sure if that will actually end up happening. Uh, <laughs> he, he's a, he's a big fan of slash film. He, actually, he mentioned the podcast on your in, in your interview, right? Yeah, he listens to the podcast every day, so he's probably listening now. Hey, Paul, how's it going? Uh, and he actually wanted to, uh, ad- I guess, directly address us, the podcast, and maybe the listeners as well, and sort of chime in with some uh, comments about conversations that we've had previously. So I'll drop that clip in right now as well. I have two things I want to say to your podcast. Yes. All right. Number one, the spoiler culture argument that was going on for such a long time. I am so confused at what you... Because, like, my idea, like, I feel like there needs to be a better definition of what spoiler culture is. Because, like, I agree. Like, I don't want someone to tell me that, and bleep this out if this is a spoiler, that Matt Damon's in Thor. That's a spoiler, right? That... 
that is a fun treat for me to see in the movie. Yeah. But me knowing that the Hulk is in Thor, that's not a spoiler right. for me. Like I think there's like variations of spoiler culture, and I was like, and there's two sides. Like I don't want to know who Ray's parents are, but I don't mind seeing a pork. Like you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, like yeah, and and, exactly. and I there feel are like definitely yeah, and yeah. I feel like that's like like so whenever I hear spoiler, like a spoiler is something that affect like you know again like you guys talked about on the podcast like knowing that Bruce Willis is dead at the end of Six Sense like. That's a spoiler. That is a that is a spoiler. That is a spoiler. It just is. Like you can't get around that. And the other thing that I that I want to talk about was uh, you're uh, well. I have a lot of thoughts on who could run this new Star Wars uh, show too. But I, I, I think Dave Filoni would be uh, amazing just because of Rebels. But I feel like everybody you guys brought up, we're all working. Like uh, like so. Um, yeah. It's it's. But to me, this is what I was going to say: is like make room for the next. Sam Esmail, make room for the, you know, all these people that you referenced, they all popped out of nowhere. It right. wasn't like, oh, Sam Esmail's doing yeah. Mr. Robot? Yeah. Like, it wasn't, you know, and I think that will be the, that hopefully will be the person that uh, that takes Star Wars to the yeah, next level. whoever's directing, like, yeah. the, this year's Sundance Comedy or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, you never know. know. Yeah, because yeah. it's like, it's like, yeah, because it's like, like, those, those are the people that we're most excited about. Like, the people ultimately... Who come in from nowhere and like, oh, who is that? Yeah. Sorry, that was my. Uh, That's great. Thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Thank oh, you very much. That is amazing, by the way. I, I, I love it that Paul Shear listens to the show. Uh, I love it that, like, uh, someone I'm a fan of is a big fan of the stuff that we do on, on the site. Uh, I, I think he's right. I think um, th- there needs to be a better definition of what is a spoiler, but I think defining a spoiler is different in so many people's point of views. You know, some people consider anything, you know, even the plot synopsis that's, you know, on, on IMDb or like, you know, the trailer is a spoiler. So it's, 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 it's hard to define there, but let's talk about star, star Wars for a second, because you guys were not on this star Wars, uh, podcast. Uh, do you guys have any suggestions on who should, uh, direct a star Wars TV show, a live action TV show? Uh, I listened to that episode and I was I was, you know, I noticed that you guys were trying to come up with uh, a potential female showrunner. And I think somebody that might be able to fit in that realm would be uh, Moira Wally Beckett, who uh, was a producer and writer on Breaking Bad. She wrote uh, Osmandius, which I think is the best episode of Breaking Bad. Um, it's the one that Ryan Johnson directed, like right near the very end of the show is like the, the second to last episode or something, a tremendous hour of TV, like one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Um, she also wrote for, um, this, uh, NBC show called Reigns that starred Jeff Goldblum back in 2007 that only ran for one season, but I liked it a lot before it got canceled. Um, and you know, she's, she's been, uh, she's created TV shows before she created uh, flesh and bone and, and with an E. So I think, you know, she definitely has the, the experience and the chops to, to maybe step into that world. Um, breaking bad, you know, that's got to have a lot of, uh, cultural cachet. Um, so I think, uh, oh. yeah, she might be able to do it. In that Ryan Johnson connection, obviously, you know, he could probably offer a recommendation to uh, yeah. KK uh, <laughs> for <laughs> who it is. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking after the podcast of other uh, women. It, it's really tough because I, I feel like uh, uh, as a site, uh, one of our core values is pushing diversity. And we we want to put And I, it's very hard to find a film, female filmmaker uh, showrunner who has experience, who isn't like you know a newbie, um, that I, I think could fit this 
Bill, I was thinking Michelle McLaren, but uh, she doesn't quite fit. I don't think I, I somehow think that she wouldn't want to do a Star Wars TV show. Actually, yeah, she's I like, have a suggestion. I think yeah. uh, I just thought of one. Um, so Marty Knoxon, who used to work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and basically ran the show for season six and went on to create Unreal and several other uh, shows that are on Lifetime right now. She's really talented, and I think she would fit in well with sort of that um, sci-fi realm because she's worked so often with Joss Whedon. Uh, Jane Espenson, too. She's more commonly a writer, but she's worked on Buffy Vampire Slayer and Once Upon a Time. So I think those could be good choices. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I knew you guys could bring some names to this to this table. Uh, what do you guys think of, of Dave Filoni as a live-action uh director for 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 this tv show anything i mean i haven't i haven't seen any of rebels yet i know i'm like woefully far behind on that but from everything that i've heard in every interview that i've ever read with him or every time anytime i've ever seen him in anything he seems like the guy who is probably the closest to uh star wars royalty outside of uh, george lucas as there is like he is the guy who holds the secrets to all you know this storytelling he like studied under lucas and he he knows that world better than just about anybody so i think he's a, a pretty good choice for that uh you know that position if it's something that he's interested in i, f- I feel like we need to create a voicemail that just paul Shear has a number to he is the only person has a number <laughs> And he can call in and leave a message, and when needed, we'll bring it up on the podcast. Uh, if Paul is game, I, I will create that number. Uh, but let's move on to Justice League, because there's a lot of Justice League news. Uh, Justice League reshoots, we've talked about it uh, quite a bit. We now know how much of the finished movie makes up for these reshoots by Joss Whedon. Ben, what do we know? Yes, producer Charles Roven, who has produced every live-action Batman movie since Batman Begins, says that uh, Whedon films between 15 to 20 percent of what we see in the final cut of Justice League. Uh, his exact quote is, the goal is to make sure when you're watching the movie, it all feels cohesive. The imprint that Joss had, some aspect of it, is going to come out in the direction, but the actors are already pretty much down the road on their arcs. Let's just say 80, 85 percent of the movie is what was originally shot. There's only so much you can do with the other 15 to 20 percent of the movie so peter you've actually seen justice league i think i'm seeing it at the screening tomorrow night um i I can't really speak too much to (laughs) what the film the final film feels like but i'm sure you can what did you think about that i mean you you can definitely see whedon's hands on it but i do think some people i've said this before i think some people will think that some stuff uh was whedon and it was actually you know Zack snyder you know stuff i saw on set when i was in london um I will say that, you know, even though maybe only 15, 20 percent of this movie was, you know, done by Joss Whedon, uh, there's a reported, unconfirmed 50 minutes of movie that were edited out that were shot by Zack Snyder. So, uh, you know, it's all about the edit. Reshoots isn't just about the actual footage they shoot. It's also about what they choose to exclude as well. Mm -hmm. Um I did see the movie again last night for the second time. I know it's not out, guys, but uh, I was invited to the premiere in Hollywood. And uh, I will say this. I liked it better a second time. I'm not sure critics will will dig this movie. Um, you know, it has a lot of plot problems and villain problems. But I think if, if you can go in there... I'm trying to think of a way of saying it. If you can go in there not caring about the plot or the villain, (laughs) (laughs) 
if you can go in there just to <laughs> hang out with these people, these characters, the characters are fun. And you, I don't know. I had a fun time. Uh, I'm not saying it's a great movie, it, it, but it, I think it's it's course correcting this uh, franchise, this uh, cinematic universe into the right direction. Um, but speaking of which, uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie will not be uh, we will not find that out until the day before the release. Uh, there's some controversy around this. HT, what's going on? So the Justice League Rotten Tomatoes score, their tomato meter, has been pushed back to be revealed on uh, Thursday, November 16th at 12.01 a.m. EST, which is a day before the movie's release on November 17th. So it's going to be revealed in conjunction with Rotten Tomatoes' new Facebook show, See It, Skip It, which was uh, premiered earlier this month. So there's been some... uh, talk around this sort of topic because Warner Brothers is a minority shareholder in Fandango, which is Rotten Tomatoes' parent company. But there probably, there doesn't seem to be at least any sort of correlation between that. Uh, The See It, Skip It show has um, pushed back a movie's tomato meter rating before, and this was with Bad Moms, which was released last week. And uh, they did that because the review embargo date lined up with the date of their um, the when their Facebook show airs. So this was just the movie that they chose to highlight on their show. And um, Justice League is likely not some part of some greater conspiracy uh, to tamp down on bad reviews uh, against the film. It's However, a, it is. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say it just seems weird. I, even if there isn't conspiracy theory, like I feel like if I was Rotten Tomatoes, I mm-hmm. would kind of like you know, does it make sense to do this? We're owned by Warner Brothers. Will this look bad? <laughs> Definitely does not look good. Yeah, it it looks shady. Even if it isn't shady, it looks shady. And all for what? For purposes of promoting their web series. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It's not great optics, um, especially considering sort of the uh, how Rotten Tomatoes is involved in conversations about uh, the veiling box office or DC Comics fans kind of ganging, ganging up on it whenever a DC comic movie has a bad tomato meter score. But uh, it comes also after a really late review embargo for uh, the movie, which is only two days before the movie is revealed, which is alarmingly close for a wide release like Justice League. So it it kind of seems like the studio itself doesn't have a huge stock in or huge trust in how well Justice League will do, even though we've seen with social media reaction that it has kind of positive uh feedback there's people don't hate it it's a good fun enjoyable movie for the most part so it seems a little bit strange that they're really playing things close to the chest for this movie and uh this rotten tomato score just kind of is another cherry on top of this strange environment that's surrounding justice league also in the news is uh ben affleck is talking more and more about the future of batman uh I feel like if I was Ben Affleck and people kept on asking me these Batman questions, I would just be have a definitive yes or no. But the fact that he is, you know, saying all these things, it's it seems a little sketch. 
Ben, what is he saying this time? Yes, in a new uh, interview with USA Today, uh, Ben Affleck revealed that he has not fully committed to playing Batman in Matt Reeves' upcoming Batman standalone movie that he's developing. So the quote from USA Today is, the new Batman movie being developed by Matt Reeves is, quote, something I'm contemplating, says Affleck, who originally was tapped to direct. Quote, you don't do it forever, so I want to find a graceful and cool way to segue out of it. End quote. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, Peter, I, you know, again, you're the only one of us here who's seen Justice League. Did it seem like he was sleepwalking his way through that movie or did he seem engaged with that character? Uh, based on what Ben Affleck does in that film, what does it look like? What do you think about the future of him playing Batman again? Um, well, I think Batman in Justice League plays a great foil he plays a great straight man side by side with aquaman or the flash or even you know wonder woman who is you know full of hope uh i i i feel like um you know it's not nolan's batman but i don't know i like ben affleck as batman but at the same time i don't think i don't think he's gonna be in uh matt reeves batman or if he is i think uh he will be killed off um, oh, interesting. I, I mean, they, they, uh, no spoilers for Justice League, but I think it, it's kind of made clear in Justice League that he's getting older. I mean, it's made clear in Batman vs Superman as well that he's kind of like an old, uh, uh, getting an old, older in this role of this vigilante. This isn't like you know his early days as Gotham's uh, hero. So, um, so maybe maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe you know a. Uh, Batman Beyond kind of a spinoff uh, or not spinoff, but a, a next chapter to this franchise. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I would welcome that completely. Yeah. Um, but let's move on from Justice League and the DCEU and let's go to Netflix. They're distributing Martin Scorsese's next film, The Irishman. Uh, is it going to hit theaters? HT, what do we know? Well, that's the question, see. So uh, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is a movie that has long been gestating and been shopped around Hollywood because of its incredibly hefty price tag. Uh, the director wanted to use de-aging technology to show Robert De Niro and Al Pacino's characters uh, throughout the stages of their lives. So this would mean an extensive use of the de-aging technology that we haven't seen since perhaps like the curious cage of Benjamin Button. And while the technology now is much more advanced than even with that film, it would be very costly. We're looking at uh, more than $100 million for the production, maybe $125 million uh, in a ballpark, according to a producer for the film. So it could go more, much higher considering that they have only just started shooting and um, – Netflix was the only uh, sort of studio that was willing to back that costly production budget. And uh, Scorsese was very glad to commit to that because he needed someone, he needed a studio that would uh, back that huge um, ballooning uh, price. So he uh, reportedly um, started made a deal with with Netflix based on the condition that the Irishman would receive a 2019, 2019 theatrical release and uh, that it would be in theaters for two weeks, which would qualify it for an Oscar uh, contention. However, it seems that Netflix's film uh, division 
has not yet confirmed a theatrical release at all for The Irishman. So it's being made and it's currently shooting at the moment, yeah. but there is no confirmation that it will hit theaters. Well, well, to be clear, that awards run just needs to be in like one theater in New York and L.A. to qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, and Netflix notoriously in the past has not wanted to do anything other than day and date, which means, you know, it mm-hmm. being in theaters at the same time that it's on the streaming service. So it'll be interesting to see if they do anything wide or if they do anything early for this film. Uh, yeah, they have a very um, tense relationship with theater, with theaters, it seems, because they're very much of the opinion and they seem to want to stick to their mission statement of streaming first, theater second. But they've because of that, they've kind of alienated, excuse me, alienated a lot of the film festival and award festival circuit. So it's something that I think they'll have to take into account, especially for Martin Scorsese, who is such a uh, legendary filmmaker and who's definitely part of that awards circuit no matter what film he does i I don't think anybody's going to turn this down if if netflix went to the man chinese theater and was like we want to put this in theaters for a week uh are you going to turn martin scorsese's movie down no (laughs) it's going to be yeah and also um netflix just uh decided to put mudbound which is a movie that played at this year's sundance film festival and they acquired it um that movie i think is coming out this coming friday uh, november 17th so they also they decided to put mudbound in a limited theatrical release in like i don't know 15 theaters or something uh this friday so i can't imagine that they would you know, give a film like that a, a theatrical release. Yeah. I mean, no offense to Mudbound, but <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like with, yeah. with a Martin Scorsese movie, something that, you know, has all eyes of the whole industry on it because of everybody that's involved. I can't imagine that they wouldn't just like slip it into a few theaters here and there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, speaking of awards, we I, I want to talk about Get Out because Get Out is obviously going to be one of the films that a lot of people are going to be talking about this award season. And uh, as it turns out, the Golden Globes are considering putting it, uh, nominating it as a comedy. Ben, why does this keep on happening? I don't know. Uh, Chris Tapley, who works for Variety, he's an awards editor over there, uh, tweeted today that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association met today to determine the categories and Get Out uh, is officially going to be in the comedy section. So this uh, obviously sort of calls to mind a a recent uh, quote-unquote controversy at the Golden Globes where they put Ridley Scott's The Martian in the best comedy or musical category. Um, You know, that movie was very clearly a drama that happened to be funny. Get Out, to me, is very clearly a horror satire that happens to be funny, but I guess... You know, the Golden Globes, we have this conversation every time, every year they come around. It's basically just a sort of drunken excuse to get famous people to, you know, show up in this room and like, you know, uh, rub shoulders with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. So it's not too surprising that they're looking to a get this movie involved in the awards conversation because it does deserve that. But then B. Uh, get all of the people involved with the film to this award show just to sort of uh you know, raise the profile of the Golden Globes as well, because everybody loves Get Out. It's still like, even though it came out early this year, it's still a movie that people are talking about. So uh, <laughs> this whole category thing is is pretty ridiculous. But um, but yeah, this seems to be the latest entry in that uh, that category. Um, also in the news, uh, sorry to fast forward, folks, but we, we have a lot to get to today. Um, also in the news, uh, news that Super Mario Brothers 
the Nintendo video game might actually become an animated movie from the studio that brought you Despicable Me, and that's Illumination Entertainment. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reports that people with knowledge of the discussions uh, say that they are, are Nintendo and Illumination are close to signing an agreement that uh, would bring Mario to theaters. Um, you know, this is big news. Uh, apparently, uh, one of the uh, complications in this negotiation is that Nintendo wants to be a part of the creative process in a way that uh, video game companies aren't normally in movies. And, um, you know, uh, Miyamoto, who's the guy that created Mario and Donkey Kong, uh, he he um, is being part of these talks and he wants to be a producer on the movie alongside uh, Chris Melodondri, who, who runs Illumination. Um, obviously, there was that Super Mario Brothers movie, uh, I think, in the 80s early 90s something like that um yeah. that was pretty horrible uh we, we have an article 93. on 93 yeah we have an article on the site from blake harris that details the making of that movie from his book console wars which uh is, is a great book that you should check out um obviously nintendo does not want a repeat of that they want uh, to keep control of their character but um and, and you know I'm, I'm a fan of super mario brothers i'm not a huge video game fan but it, it occurs to me, especially recently, while I'm watching my girlfriend Ketra play Super Mario Odyssey, uh, that there really isn't too much of a storyline uh, with these Mario Brothers uh, games, and in, in so much as it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. There's basically... Yeah, I think that's an understatement. There is no story. Yeah, so, so what do you guys think? What could a Super Mario Brothers movie even be? Well, I think they have free reign to do whatever they want with it. Uh, we've seen the Emoji movie and the Angry Birds movie make stories out of apps or literal just facial fa- emotions. So uh, Super Mario Brothers, they could really just go crazy and do like a trippy fever dream of a movie, which I would really enjoy if they went there. But um, I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's very strange that you have a plumber saving a princess from a castle run by a dragon, I think, or evil turtle, one of the other, <laughs> one of the two. So it's you, you. There's so many directions you could do with that. Yeah, I would love to see them um, make you know ten or fifteen Mario Brothers movies over the next fifteen or twenty years, and have a different filmmaker come in and do a completely different style of movie for each one sort of like you're talking about peter like there's no real cohesive narrative you know to the franchise as a whole lean into that just go crazy and let you know different people come and make different mario movies in different genres sort of like how you know marvel's doing different uh you know genre storytelling within the superhero um sort of uh, structure just go for that in in a mario brothers movie you know get like an animated version get like a stop motion version just go crazy i don't know (laughs) And I also wonder, do you think that this is going to be the story of Mario, you know, a plumber that gets sucked into sucked into this world and trying to save the princess? Or do you think this could possibly be like a Wreck-It Ralph style, kind of like breaking the fourth wall of, you know, the guys in a video game kind of thing? Hmm. I don't know. That, that would be fun. I would like to watch that. Um, it should also be mentioned that Universal Studios, uh, who uh, 
you know they they distribute the illumination entertainment movies they are they have a deal to bring nintendo to their theme parks the first being japan and then uh orlando and uh hollywood and mario is going to be one of those attractions so it makes sense for them to want to you know make mario movies uh i just i'm just uh not sure what those movies are going to look like um but let's move on from that to Are You Afraid of the Dark? I know this is a TV show I used to watch on, uh, what was it, Nick? Um, Nickelodeon. Yeah, but I, I think. think it was part of their something block. I forget was what it was. Was it SNICK or something? Maybe was it, it was, maybe it was SNICK? SNICK, yeah. Um, anyways, there's a movie in the works with the screenwriter of It. HT, what do you know? So an Are You Afraid of the Dark movie is in the works at Paramount Players, which is a new division of Paramount Pictures. Uh, it screenwriter uh, Gary Dowerman is going to be penning the movie, and uh, that's the only information we know for now. But it seems like it's part of the new trend of putting the nostalgia goggles on and re- revisiting some of the genre hits of our childhood. So I never actually watched Are You Afraid of the Dark as a kid because I did not have cable. But I think it would be a really great way to play into the Stranger Things and It crowd uh, and hopefully will be more of a success than the similarly nostalgia-fueled movies like Power Rangers or Goosebumps. See, I, w- I was a fan of the TV show, and I, I think this is probably the wrong way of going about it. I know Paramount really? owns uh, Nickelodeon. I think they should bring this back as a TV series. Like, mm. you know, the, the great thing about this is it was an anthology show. So it's, you know, different stories every week. You know, it's people telling stories around a campfire, basically. Um and I think uh, I think that would be the appeal of it for me is, you know, seeing an, it as an anthology series again and having the screenwriter of it seems a little weird. But um, Ben, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, I'm, I didn't really watch the show uh, growing up or anything. I'm just wondering about the anthology thing. I, I think a movie. I don't know. It's tough because like what what network would Paramount put this on? If they, I think they, I think they just rebranded, um, what was it? Spike TV into the Paramount network actually. So maybe they would put it on that, but it seems like, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about peak TV in the past few weeks. Um, you know, I feel like a show like this might just sort of, uh, uh, you know, disappear into the ether and, and not really make that much of a splash, but as a movie, at least, um, it would have a lot more focused concentration on it, I think. So I don't know. It It's hard to say because we don't really know anything about what Doberman is planning on doing with this. If it's going to be, you know, like multiple stories that sort of uh, interlink or if it's just one continuous story or how, how he's going to structure it, what it's going to look like. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's tough to say at this stage. Yeah. And uh, last week we had news that uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is no longer happening um, this week we are learning by the tracking board that Sam Mendez, who was in talks to make a live action Pinocchio for Disney, uh, from a screenplay by Chris Weitz, uh, who, uh, won an Oscar for about a boy. Um, he, uh, he is no longer attached to make this movie. Uh, doesn't mean that Disney isn't going to find someone to replace them. They probably are, you know, Disney seems dead set on, you know, live action, quote unquote, remakes of all their animated classics. Uh, I was never really, you know, attached to the idea of a 
live action Pinocchio movie or even Sam Mendes doing the live action Pinocchio movie. Do you guys have any thoughts on uh, who should replace him? Man, that's a tough one. I'm still sad about the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio movie, so he would be my choice. (laughs) Yeah, and Sam Mendes actually sounds like, you know, he he can really lean into, um, you know, melancholy tones as a filmmaker. And I think that's a pretty decent match with Pinocchio. So it's sort of a shame that he is parting ways here uh, because I think he could have done something a little bit interesting, more interesting than what we've seen in in previous Disney light of action adaptations, which a, a lot of them have just been sort of almost carbon copies of the animated versions. I feel like Mendes could have brought a, uh, a stylistic influence to it that would have been uh, something a little bit more unique. Um, I don't know. Peter, do you have any suggestions for who could who could take on a live-action Pinocchio movie? I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe John Favreau, because maybe John Favreau has to make all these Disney <laughs> you know, animated live-action adaptations. Um, I, I don't have a good suggestion. Maybe it's because I'm not excited about a live action Pinocchio movie. Uh, you know, I wasn't even excited about the one that was in the works at uh, Warner Brothers. It might still be in the works. Warner Brothers, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was uh, going to star and um, Paul Thomas Anderson was being courted to direct. And even wow. with Paul Thomas ah, Anderson. Fancy. Yeah, even with Paul Thomas Anderson. Do you want to see a Pinocchio movie directed by Paul Thomas Anderson? <laughs> I mean, (laughs) just to see what that looks like. But (laughs) that might go into interesting places. So who knows if I mean, if it ever came about, but I I kind of doubt it would. Yeah, I I doubt that uh, they're going to give him the creative control that he demands. um, Rightfully so. Uh, That does it for today's edition of Slash Film Daily. Uh, You can find more of me at Slash Film. You can find more of HT at HTranBooey on Twitter. You can find more of Ben at BenPairs on Twitter. You can find all the all the articles we talked about on slashfilm.com and linked in the show notes. Uh, you can find this podcast published every day on, or every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please, please go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. That helps us out quite a bit, and we will see you tomorrow. <laughs>